welcome to my kitchen. My name is Tepan Murisana. I hold a WACT Level 2 certificate, an advanced brandy certificate from the Cape Wine Academy. In 2016, I was awarded the Veritas Young Wine Writer of the Year Award. I've written for many, many publications and edited one or two in my time. I hold an interest in many topics and many things, including construction, if you can imagine. So I hope that you'll be able to pull up a seat, come into my kitchen and enjoy endless hours of not only food and wine, but many of the other delectable topics that keep us engaged. We look forward to hosting you soon. Welcome back to my kitchen. In this episode, as we do every episode, I will bring the wine and then we're going to make it pop. And finally, the dish where we speak about something or someone delectable who's making our world a sweeter place. In this episode, I had the great honour and privilege of sitting down with the inimitable Michael Fridgen to discuss the joy of Johannesburg and how the city never lost its sparkle. Michael Fridgen is one of the most preeminent thought leaders in the global wine and spirits trade. I met with him at his offices at the Reciprocal Wine Company in Johannesburg. Over an espresso and a box of Turkish delights, he divulged decades worth of South African wine history and how some of that history has been shaped by Johannesburg. Gauteng's City of Gold. For decades, the Reciprocal Wine Company has been South Africa's leading fine wine and spirits merchant. An importer and distributor of many of the world's most famous wines, Reciprocal focuses mainly on family-owned multi-generational properties where the multi-generational experience and institutional memory ensures the commitment to a long-term vision. Accordingly, the company has become the go-to source for South African wine lovers who seek a variety of high-quality international wines, spirits, and wine accessories. These include the infamous Louis Ruderer Champagne and accessories like Riedel Glassware. Michael's razor-sharp wit made his Business Day column appointment reading for decades. RMB WineX has become an annual calendar event that has become a wonderful online interactive space for wine enthusiasts during the global coronavirus pandemic. Michael has also been at the heart of the Old Mutual Trophy Wine Show, a prestigious competition. He was also part of the team behind The Colour of Wine, a groundbreaking book by Harriet Pullman and subsequent film directed by Akin Omatoso about the South African wine industry's relationship with race. A reciprocant of the French Chevalier de Lord du Merit Agricole, he was the Louis Rudera International Wine Columnist of the Year in 2012 and is an honorary life member of the UK's Circle of Wine Writers. He teaches and directs the Wine Judging Academy run in association with UCT's Graduate School of Business and has been an advisor to the South African Minister of Agriculture. He's the author, co-author or contributor to over 30 books, writes a weekly column for Business Day, contributes to various international wine publications and provides all the wine scores for Wine Wizard, an eminent website. Michael Fridgen speaks for himself, as you'll hear. And in this conversation, you'll hear a variety of views on various topics. You'll also hear him make mention of some of Johannesburg's most preeminent artists, an array of South African winemakers, and some of his personal recollections of the past, as well as a poignant view of the present. In this episode's Pop of Culture and the Dish, we revisited an incredible initiative. I recently had the opportunity of sitting down to lunch at Tang Restaurant at Nelson Mandela Square in Johannesburg with Anthony and Olive Hamilton-Russell, as well as a variety of fascinating guests. 
At this lunch, Anthony and Olive revisited the magic flute. In 2007, internationally acclaimed artists William Kentridge and Rand Merchant Brank brought the Kentridge production of Mozart's The Magic Flute to South Africa and committed to raising additional funds to provide matinee performances free of charge to schoolchildren from previously disadvantaged communities. Kentridge granted six of South Africa's leading red wine producers the opportunity to use selected magic flute images for their label design, a creative initiative between the wine industry, culture and the arts, and this was proposed to meet the substantial costs of the outreach initiative. It was a great privilege to taste some of the wines that were selected. Michael Fridgen, who shares a long association with RMB through the RMB Winex Festival, provided a short list of South Africa's leading red wine sellers. Those sellers included Buchenholz Kloof, Hamilton Russell Vineyards, Mierlust, Quinrock, Rustenburg, and Takara. Each seller chose a reserve wine selection for sale under the seller's name, although each selection would go on to bear its own unique Kentridge label design, drawn from among various covetable images produced by Kentridge for the Magic Flute sets. It is especially Kentridge's spectacular set designs for the opera that won critical acclaim in various European capitals where the work was performed since 2005. The Kentridge editions sold at a premium with the additional income accruing from this that enabled the wineries to each donate 50,000 rand to contribute towards the cost of the special matinee performances for the children. I was so touched by this initiative because I thought how delightful that the children would be able to not only witness an opera, but an opera by Mozart, given color and life by one of South Africa's most preeminent artists. And not only did South African audiences have the opportunity to enjoy these striking and multi-layered sets, costume designs, and Kentridge's own individual approach to one of Mozart's most popular musical theater pieces, they also got to taste some of South Africa's best red wines, delectably dressed in Kentridge-designed magic flute label. It was a great joy to revisit the 2007 Hamilton Russell Pinot Noir alongside the other wines selected, at the lunch, we also tasted some of the new Hamilton Russell vintages, and I hope to be able to share more about that conversation with you in the future. This week's episode of In My Kitchen was such a joy and such a privilege. Through my conversation with Michael, I quizzed him and he indulged me in a complex conversation about politics and economics, about culture and the culture. It was a great delight to sit down with Michael Fridgen and I hope that you'll enjoy the conversation we had about the joy of Johannesburg. Uh, I'm sitting with Michael Fridgen in Johannesburg um, at a beautiful little enclave in Parktown. And sitting here makes me think a lot about Johannesburg and its relationship to the wine industry. So can you share a little bit about your view on how um, wine was introduced to Johannesburg at the beginning of your career? I mean, that's quite an interesting question because it's almost unimaginable okay. how much has changed. So when I was a kid, I was lucky. I grew up in an environment in which wine was served. Um, my parents served wine. My parents' friends served wine. There wasn't the same concerns and obsessions and everything else around alcohol and kids. 
And maybe part of that was the fact that licensing was very rigorous. So there was no chance on earth that you could walk into a bottle store if you were markedly underage and buy anything. And you certainly weren't allowed to walk into a bar or a pub. And if you went to a restaurant, there was no chance at all mm. that wine would be served to somebody who was underage, even if that person was with his or her parents. So it was an era in which there was a very clear demarcation. But in the same breath, it was a, a kind of environment in which if you were considered in a safe place, you might be exposed to wine. My family, which was um, a very unconventional family. and How so? <laughs> <laughs> My parents were, I suppose, quite bohemian. Most of our family friends were, I suppose, what were loosely called intellectuals. They were certainly part of the, um, the opposite of the political elite. There were a lot of people who were radical opponents to the government at the time. Uh, free thinkers, and a lot of them were actually artists. So Sunday lunches, the famous names in art from 50 and 60 years ago with the people around the table, they all served wine, they all drank wine. I grew up in a sort of wine environment in which it was perfectly normal once you reached the age of 10 or 12 that you would at least have one glass. And prior to that age, you certainly had a splash of wine in a glass that was filled with water which was the continental way of doing things. And most of these people were continentals in that they'd come to South Africa after the Second World War. But the wine culture itself was very limited. So, you know, I grew up thinking that everybody drank wine, but they didn't. Um, if you went to a bottle store, as they were called, in the 1960s, um, what you would have seen is maybe a dozen brands on the uh, on the shelf, and those brands were merchants' brands, so they would have been the Niederbergs, the Zonnebloms. I don't think there was even Fleur du Cup. There was Bellingham, um, and that really was pretty much it. And a few independent producers, the most memorable of which was Rustenberg, and because my parents liked Rustenberg wines and their friends liked them, we were often the point of delivery for the order that was distributed to the friends. So there would be 30 or 50 cases of wine delivered of a day, which astonished the man from the railways who couldn't believe that people ordered so much wine. And then those cases would be distributed to the 10 or 15 people who said, I'll take a case or two. And that's an indication of how hard it was to simply go out and buy a bottle of South African wine in Johannesburg in the 60s. If you went to a restaurant, it was Absolutely. There. Most restaurants, certainly the sort of family restaurants, the ones in the environment where you'd go out with your kids, those restaurants weren't even licensed and they didn't sell wine under the table. But you could arrive, as people did, with their own bottle of whiskey. Oh, okay. And they <laughs> would say, like yeah, could we have glasses and ice and soda water? Mm -hmm. And they would drink whiskey right through the meal. So it would be hard to describe that Johannesburg as having much of a wine culture. There was a, a separate imported wine culture. It was quite rarefied. There were two or three um, wine merchants who stocked an extraordinary range of the most fabulous imported wines at prices that were, even by the standards of what people might be earning at the time, ridiculously cheap. So in the 19, late 60s, early 70s, a bottle of Niederberg Cabernet cost one rand eighty. 
Mm-hmm. But for three or four rand, you could buy a class growth Bordeaux. And for 18 rand, you could buy a bottle of Romani Conti. So if you say 10 times the price of Niederberg for a bottle of Romani Conti, that same bottle of Romani Conti today, current vintage, would sell for 200,000 rand. It was extraordinary what you could drink if you had that little bit of disposable income and you were interested in wine. But the mere fact that that Romani Conti was 18 rand in Johannesburg, admittedly with a very strong rand, mm-hmm. is an indication that not that many people in Europe were drinking it either. If it was as much in demand then, if it had been, compared with today, it wouldn't have been 18 rand, it might have been 100 rand. So let's the imagine truth... the South Africa in the 70s, with the wine makers themselves going overseas. They the never university. did. They never did, very few. I'm trying to do a story on the late Dame P. Bailey and the mm-hmm. role he played for the industry. And Dame P, in a sense, was remarkable because he went to study at UC Davis in the early 60s. And that earlier generation often went to study in Germany. Donny De Vett yeah. went to Germany. But very few of our winemakers of that era had much in the way of technical training. They... You know, the late Kursi Stark from Mirandol said to me, we made wine according to a formula. So much sulphur, so much yeast, chuck it all together and hope it turns out. Gary Baumgartner, who tracked the history of those fabulous old muscadels that you can still sometimes see from KWV, said it was a hit and miss business. So the 53 is fabulous because the formula of what you had to do to make the wine coincided with the condition of the fruit. And the years where it didn't coincide, we haven't seen the wines. They just didn't survive. They so got chucked out or distilled or whatever. A bad cake recipe following everyone. So when did... So let's look at um, South Africa in the 80s. So my assumption is the political climate had changed dramatically. Um, there was a lot of um, international trade uh, restrictions. So a lot of international wine, I'm assuming, also couldn't come in. It was still coming in. Was it We're contraband or was it... Not at all. There was, you know, for all the so-called isolation, mm-hmm. um, the French weren't at the front of the queue to isolate South Africa. So there were no restrictions at all oh, that I'm aware of on imported wine. The restrictions were primarily on exports. So that is true. The wine industry suddenly discovered that there was no easy way to dispose of a surplus because those wines had to exit with the South African passport. There are many stories, not all of them as funny as I think, um, in the sense that um, sanctions busting is a bit wild west, and it makes you laugh at first, and then you think, actually, but that defeated the object of what the sanctions were there for in the first place. But, I mean, certainly, V confessed to packing... Tanker loads, you know, those things that look like petrol trains. Yes. That tanker loads of wine that were taken to the port, filled into container ships that didn't have those 20-foot flexi-tainers. They were huge tanks inside the ship, and they filled them with that fluid, which was taken to Rotterdam, and somewhere along the way, miraculously, it converted from South African Cabernet to Bulgarian Cabernet, so it could be sold to the supermarkets in England or wherever it was sold. So the sanctions busting was on the export side. But there was a change in South Africa in the second half of the 70s. 
Partly, we had an influx of technically competent people from behind the Iron Curtain. Okay. So if you think of the likes of Julius Laszlo, of Desiderius uh, Pongratz, the people who came in were technically trained, competent, and they said things like, why aren't we sorting out our clonal material? So Laszlo was the guy who said, we need to import Chardonnay vines, we need to import Merlot. There was no Merlot in the country. We Just need imagine to... all those poor book clubs. Yeah, exactly. What would people drink? <laughs> okay. So there was a massive importation of new planting material in the second half of the 70s. And hence, the first Bordeaux blend was the 79 Vachement. The first famous Bordeaux blend was the Rubicon of 1980. With this commitment to a more European or international style of, style of winemaking, and that also meant European varieties, new wood. So Laszlo was the one who drove the whole idea of new French oak. There had been people playing with it before. Canoncorp had a few barrels. Uh, Lawrence Jonker at Veltefred did it. So there was suddenly, mid-70s onwards, quite a lot of experimentation. Okay. And with it, younger people coming into the industry. And they came into an industry that got progressively locked down in terms of sanctions. And for them, sanctions meant that they were inward-looking. Um, they couldn't export as they might have 10 years before. The local market was still dominated by old-style wholesalers and the KWV. So to make a, a, a difference, to make an impact, they had to look to different strategies. And the difference then between the 60s, as I described it, and the 70s is also that the industry progressively moved away from wholesaler wines. So the late France Milan, mm -hmm. when he decided to turn Simon Sec into a retail estate, he wanted to bottle just some of his wine and sell it to the public. The wholesaler said very clearly, if you sell wine to the public, we will not buy your bulk. Okay. And he had a business that depended on selling all his bulk wine to the wholesalers. So it was a kind of duck or no dinner decision. And he said, well, that's it. I'll go to the public. And that's why we have the start of the Stellenbosch Wine Group. We have all of these new attempts at creating a retail environment because the producers who wanted to give up their dependence on selling bulk to the wholesalers mm -hmm. suddenly had to create a retail market of people who would come to the cellar door, buy wine and get it railed to their homes. And so that era of mail and rail of wine routes, of direct engagement between consumers and wine farms mm -hmm. is a 1970s phenomenon. Once it took off, once people discovered that Franz Fanon didn't go bankrupt, once they discovered that there was a market for that kind of wine. And then there were retailers in Johannesburg, Benny Goldberg's, which is where I cut my teeth, had this huge selection of South Can African wine. Can I ask, cut your teeth during what? Carrying well, boxes so, or? <laughs> that, well, I got a job there as a student. I was already quite knowledgeable about imported wine. So I used to shop there mm -hmm. with the leftovers of my bursary. And they said to me one holiday, why don't you work here as the kind of advisor in the imported wine section? So I worked there as a student at the end of my bachelor's degree. And then they said, well, next year you're doing honours. Why don't you stay on semi? You know, you still go to university, but... Do all the imported wine buying etc etc so I never 
did the reel, carried the boxes, and but I did get there at five in the morning to open the store so the brewery's truck would arrive. Okay. Um, and Christmas was a horror. <laughs> but the point is it had already a couple of hundred different South African wine labels on shelf. So and from 12 to a few hundred in a yeah. matter of three de- decades? Two decades, not even. In the 60s, there would have been five brands, two or three wines per brand. So Niederberg Stein, Niederberg Late Harvest, Niederberg Cabernet. And then suddenly there were 20 or 30 producers, five or six wines each, and that makes 100. Mm-hmm. And then five years later, double the number of producers, double the number of wines in the range, and suddenly there are 200 wines on shelf. So and now this... you're at Benny Goldberg's opening the door at Christmas, and you're marvelling and you're thinking life has certainly changed <laughs> in the past 20 years. Absolutely. And so when I finished my degree, I did a year then in France, came back and I got a full-time job as imports director of what was in those days absolutely the biggest wine shop in the world. Highest turnover, container loads of the most expensive Burgundy, which still cost nothing mm-hmm. relative to South African currency, which was very strong. So it was a perfect mix. And winemakers would come to Johannesburg because it was a one-stop, biggest retailer in the country, biggest retailer in the world, And they would also buy a bit of imported wine. And that also played a role in changing their perceptions because suddenly it wasn't just that kind of isolated enclave Mm -hmm. of 30 or 40 winemakers without context. Suddenly they'd go to Betty Goldberg's, they'd come back with half a dozen Burgundies and then they would compare it to the Pinot Noir that they'd just planted or half a dozen Bordeaux's and look at the Merlot that they had just planted. So it played its own role in terms of transforming the wine industry and giving producers who had never been exposed to the wider world of wine. So besides um, the sanctions, how did democracy in the 90s change the wine industry? Okay, so lots of things happened between 85 and 94. Mm -hmm. In 85, the South African debt default, the famous Rubicon speech, suddenly the rand got weaker and weaker. So a lot of imports ceased to come. Mm -hmm. And with that end of easy, inexpensive imports, you now have a lot of producers who can't export. So they are starting to try and up their game and make expensive wines to fill the vacuum left by some of those. And so the 80s and 90s were a tough time. That's when most of the sanctions busting was going on. South Africa's surpluses couldn't leave the country at proper value. Um, The KWV was battling. And the moment it was clear that A1994 was going to happen, and that was very clear from 1990, 2nd of February 1990, the world... Can I ask where you were in February 1990? Still at Benny Goldberg's? Oh, no, no. My Benny Goldberg's days were over by 1979. I stayed on for a few years as a consultant. And in 1990, South Africa hosted the first New World Wine Auction, Mm -hmm. and quite a lot of producers and people like Selma Long came to the sale, and the news came that Medeba was going to be released, and the climate literally changed overnight in terms of the understanding that this country was going to to transform and be free and be different. And a lot of people who I think had kept their 
heads under the parapets in terms of either political involvement or exposure or whatever, put their hands up. And with that process, just within the industry, forget about, you know, suddenly no one admitted that they'd ever voted for the National Party. What did happen, and it was really quite interesting, was that you have a country where people who have been very conscious of the floodgates see the floodgates opening as a very positive thing. So I'm talking about whites that you would have thought would have been supporters of the old era. Just, I mean, the excitement was palpable. And so if you track things like, even in those days, exports open up, there might still have been sanctions nominally in place, but you go from 20 or 25 million litres exported in 1990 or 91 to 40, 50, 80. So very quickly and off a small base, exports pick up, but the RAND doesn't ever get stronger again. Mm -hmm. So it gets weaker and overseas wine has suddenly become a big deal. So the hard currency prices are going up and the RAND is getting weaker. And the effect of that is that the wine market transforms into a much more dynamic domestic wine market. KWV has one look at this and decides the writing is on the wall and they try to exit from their role as the gatekeeper of the industry. It was a statutory role that they enjoyed courtesy of a succession of governments going back to the Smuts government. So this isn't Nats only, it goes back to the old South African party. And they think actually now is the time for us to sail into the sunset and be an, kind of just another producer wholesaler. I had been a very outspoken opponent of KWV and the role that it played in managing the industry at the consumer's expense. And that was their, their brief was to protect the wine farmers. Mm -hmm. I was consumer orientated. I said, actually, the wine farmers shouldn't and don't need protection. The consumers will buy what they want to buy. You can't have a control board system and a consumer system. The two don't go together. So when the KW started withdrawing from its statutory responsibilities, I engaged with the then Minister of Agriculture, Derek Honecombe, and Alec Irwin at Trade and Industry, and we launched a series of court cases, the point of which was to stop KWV from exiting without paying back to the industry mm. the money that it had accumulated over the 70 or 80 years, years that it had been in power. And there were a number of negotiations, the end of which is KWV had to make available over 400 million rand for empowerment in the industry, for the statutory responsibilities that they had previously conducted. And that was a great idea in the sense that in principle it was there, but it needed a minister who was active and interested in transforming the industry, which Derek was, he was remarkable. Um, but in 1999, the Mandela administration was replaced by the Thabo Mbeki administration, and the first thing he did was get rid of Hanukkah 
and replaced Derek with Togo de Diesel. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the best thing that ever happened to the wine industry and under her watch, that fund of 400 million rand was squandered and that money which should have gone a long way to affecting transformation in the industry simply vanished as so much has vanished since then. But you've been responsible for reparations in other ways. Um, for example, your role with SAA, um, in which you helped to create the bursary. Um, where did that spring from? That came from just as it was self-evident. I got the job in 1994 of doing the SAA selection. And I was astonished that they never charged producers mm-hmm. for submitting wines to a process which was in fact quite expensive to run. SAA said, listen, in real life, it's not expensive because the tickets are free tickets and whatever. I said, well, then you should be doing something for the good of the industry because the guys are very happy. They're going to, if their wines get listed, they're going to sell the wine. So charge them a hundred rand each and match that commitment with a hundred rand from your side and let's establish um, a bursary scheme. And they were, I must say, they were really open to it. I think they were floundering for something good to do and that bursary scheme did work very well for the first few years and it produced quite a lot of graduates. I did a similar thing with one of the Nedbank Wealth Companies and did an exchange program with winemakers um, who were graduates of the scheme Mm -hmm. to go and work a vintage in Australia and then under the auspices of the Wine Industry Trust we were able to do exactly the same thing with students from the Cape going to Burgundy. And that Burgundy Exchange program, I think still runs, I say I think still runs, I don't think it runs every year, Mm. but it's certainly that connection established in the 1990s is still in place in terms of people being able to study in Dijon and actually do a vintage there. So there's so many amazing things that you're speaking about that um, reflect where we currently are. For example, the Development Trust um, and the work that they're doing with the Protégé program um, through Nedbank, um, as well as um, looking at Nzigi and the amazing work she's doing with Aslina and looking back, I think, over 50 years, it's evident that her wines are now being exported into New York um, and all over the world, really, with that level of enthusiasm that you're speaking about. So, I mean, it's only one example, but I think the tangibility of that um, and the palpability of that is definitely something that a lot of people um, would want to reflect and, and replicate. It's not my first language. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so now here we are um, in 2021 after a bit of a chaotic um, global pandemic, to be honest, when you look at the reality of what happened in Alsace and the damping of alcohol for sanitizer, you look at what happened in the Cape um, and what um, many companies have had to be realistic about. Um, my question might sound like it's coming out of nowhere, but well, how do you feel about box wine that has definitely <laughs> <laughs> come from nowhere? Yeah. So it's actually, can we backpedal a little bit on box sure. wine? It was launched worldwide, I think, in the early 70s in Australia. It was launched here at much the same time the same Francois Lund from Semerset was a great innovator. He also did the first Cup Classique, decided that the future of wine was in box, and he got the very cheapest plastic bags because that's what was available, and it wasn't a great success. It wasn't a great success because plastic, as opposed to foil liners, actually admits air and leaks. And I was at Betty Garbings in those days. 
you know, those, you stack up those boxes and the plastic expands and the wine leaks and the rats come and it's oh, not yeah. a lot of fun. So that was withdrawn from the market and everyone said, no future at all in box wine. A year later, Distel, as it now is, the old domestic group, launched a proper box wine, which is called Cellar Cask, and it's still available today, and it had a foil liner, and it transformed wine overnight, because firstly, it shifted the purchase from pretty much 100% male to increasingly a 50-50 and even more so, because suddenly it was in the grocery stores, which in itself was a new market. You picked up a box of wine, mm -hmm. you were buying five litres, it's half a case of wine. You could do it while you were doing the shopping. Suddenly the women were the buyers, the marketing had to shift to that as well. And people could have a glass of wine without having to finish the bottle. So do I think box wine is good for the industry? Yes, I do think so. Um, I prefer many other forms of packaging. My problem with box wine is not the packaging. It's the fact that it's less stable than people think. So they have to add sulfur, quite a lot of sulfur to stabilize it because finally there's an oxygen exchange at the tap and so what happens is that if you are sensitive to sulfur it's not great but if it helped you to become a glass or two a day person and then open a bottle and keep it in your fridge and drink a glass or two during the week that's fabulous so i'm glad the surface was not all terrible because for you at least, box wine has made a comeback. But besides um, that whole aspect, um, how do you think Johannesburg consumers have changed over the past year of the pandemic? Oh, wow. That's a really interesting question because the mere fact that we haven't been socialising means that anything I say has to be a bit of a suck of the thumb. Mm. If I look wearing a reciprocal hat, people have been have bought, generally bought a bit better. I think if you're not eating out the budget you would have spent on eating out, you've done a bit of wine upgrading, no question about that. Secondly, um, I think that people who've been at home more um, have been maybe less sociable, but more willing to share wine in the family environment. In other words, it's moved from being a special occasion mm -hmm. beverage to more of a bit of an everyday beverage. Um, I certainly have seen with the parents that I know who've got kids the age of my kids that um, it's become more part of a weekday meal. Mm. Um, but that's dipstick research. I can't say that there's anything massively general about that. Um, so looking at this culture that we're living now, in the mid-2000s, uh, which is a decade that we completely jumped over, um, <laughs> in the mid-2000s, um, you had an incredibly interesting partnership with RMB, um, where the Magic Flute Collection was launched. So um, one of my favorite parts of this podcast is, first of all, the culture aspect, where I like to speak about a book or show film. And for you guys, it was theater. So um, it's incredible that we're going to hit two songs with one, with one symbol. So you did a bit of theater. And then the, my other favorite part of this podcast is also um, the dish where we speak about someone or something delectable who's truly made the world a sweeter place. So through the arts, 
you were able to make the world slightly kinder. So can you share a little bit about the Magic Flute Collection? Okay, so the, the relationship with RMB was, of course, Winex. Um, they became the headline sponsor when we transformed what was the old Business Day Wine Festival into this event, which is Winex. And that partnership was a very good partnership. And in the first decade, round about, I think, 2006, 2007, on a completely separate basis, because amongst RMB sponsorships is art and is culture, they wanted to bring the Kentridge, the William Kentridge production of the Magic Flute to South Africa. It was an enormously expensive thing to do between the sets and everything else. Mm. William and I were, have been friends for more than 50 years. And when that happened, I said to RMB, can't we do something to get the Magic Flute available or extended to performances, to matinee performances that can be attended by school kids who wouldn't otherwise ever get the opportunity of getting there. So um, William was very sympathetic. R&B thought it was a great idea. So what we did as a kind of co-sponsorship deal is I went to half a dozen wine farms and asked them if they would be prepared firstly to um, become participants in a mixed case of their wines in which each wine would have a different Kentridge label. So William's labels, which were all associated with the images of Magic Flute, became the labels available to those producers. I hosted a function in which the six producers who'd agreed to participate literally drew lots as to which label they would get for their bottle. And they then also got a print from that and they made a payment for that. And they could then sell the wine and William agreed to, I think, 20 sets that he signed individually. So you got a six bottle set individually signed by William. So and he you paid a premium. Signed all these <clears throat> labels. I think he does that quite often. <laughs> okay. But the net effect of that was that we were able to raise enough money to facilitate access to those performance from busloads of kids mm -hmm. who came from everywhere, had an opportunity of going to the to the theatre and seeing the Magic Flute as a production in all its wonderful glory for nothing, whereas people who were going for the evening performances were paying very serious money. And William also agreed to allow it to be recorded as a, as a, as a visual performance. So there was even a distribution of Magic Flute um, DVDs. So it was actually a remarkable joint venture Everybody put their hearts and souls into it and it reached far and wide. It was great. It's incredible. And I'm so touched, um, not only by the, for the time that you shared, but also these incredibly rich and textured stories. And I think one of my favorite things about speaking to you is how these things just come off the top of your head. So it's amazing um, that obviously they've left such strong impressions on you, some more controversial <laughs> than others, but it's also amazing that you're so willing to share. So I, I genuinely do want to thank you for your time as always um, and for the generosity that you've made. Um, you could have done anything else on this Monday, but you chose to speak to me. So <laughs> thank you. It's really my pleasure. Thank you. It's always a treat talking to you. Thank you. I love you so much. Rabalante.